0: Well, we are looking at the book of Ruth. If you've got your Bible, you can navigate there. We will do, a, again, a high-level survey. We're doing a series called Cover to Cover, the big book, and this is the first time I've attempted anything like this, so it's been an experience for me as well in prep because I kind of know how to prep to a passage, but doing a whole book has been an interesting and fun challenge for me, and I hope you're enjoying it as much as I'm enjoying uh, preparing for the story. Let me read a paraphrased portion from uh, Bruce Wilkinson and Ken Boa's book called Talk Through the Bible. Ruth is a beautiful interlude of love set in a period of the judges in Israel, an era marked by immorality, idolatry, and war. This heartwarming story of devotion and faithfulness records the life of Ruth, a Moabite widow who leaves her homeland with her widowed Jewish mother-in-law, and they go to Bethlehem. God honors her commitment by guiding her to the field of Boaz, who is a near kinsman, where she gathers grain and finds a husband in him, which is a kinsman redeemer. The book closes with a brief genealogy of Boaz's name as the prominent figure, and he, of course, is the great-grandfather of King David through whom would come the Christ. As we talked last week in the book of Judges, to keep us in mind. Judges covers about 350 to 410 years. We looked at 21 chapters of that and think of trying to compare that to America's history will be 243 years old this July 14th uh, 4th. So the amount of information covered in a very small book called Judges Let's just round it up to 400, call it 400 years, is quite an accomplishment. The book of Ruth is folded into that story, and the book of Ruth is probably a 30-year time frame. J. Sidlow Baxter describes the book of Ruth in a wonderful way, making a contrast and comparison to Esther and Ruth, which uh, Christy mentioned. This is one of the only two books in Scripture which bear the names of women. Ruth and Esther. They stand in marked contrast. Ruth is a young Gentile woman who is brought to live among Hebrews and marries a Hebrew husband in the Royal line of David. Esther is a young Hebrew woman who is brought to live among the Gentiles and marries a Gentile husband on the throne of the great empire. I had not made that observation before. And what a great bookmark of these two women, heroine of the faith Want a Gentile in the Hebrew world? What a Hebrew in the Gentile world and the way God uses that. Any of you know the name J. Vernon McGee? You're old enough to remember J. Vernon McGee? I won't try to uh, pronounce it the way uh, or, or say it the way he does, but I can always hear him talk about Ruth. the story of Ruth is the greatest love story ever told. He would tell in this real thick drawl of a, a Southerner. Uh, Tom Constable, and I make a friendly reminder, Dr. Constable's notes, uh, you can go get there any way you want. You can just put constable and Bible study in your search engine, and it will populate to the Plano Bible Chapel that houses them all. It's all free. They're all there. They're all PDFs. You can go to a word doc if you want. They are remarkable. Dr. Constable is a friend. Uh, he has worked on these for years. He continues to update them, and they are wonderful resources. And what I like about it is you just can't find a simple synthesis of a book of the Bible, and that's what he does in a few pages. Um, he Con, uh, aggregates a lot of commentaries and comments. And in his Notes on Ruth, he he explains it this way. A German poet, Goethe, called it the loveliest complete work on a small scale ever written. Alexander Schroeder, a literary critic, wrote, No poet in the world has written a more beautiful short story. Some of you know the name uh, W.F. Albright, the eminent archaeologist who wrote, The delicacy of the story of Ruth remains unsurpassed anywhere. Ruth's loyalty to her mother-in-law, the scene between her and Boaz in chapter three, and the final episode with Naomi are gems of world literature. And by the way, to the best of my knowledge, none of those are believers, who he quotes. Constable concludes, yet even as a revelation from God, it is equally impressive. Impressive. So, the book of Ruth covers about 30 years and 89 verses. Again, keep in mind American history, how would you incorporate, what would you write about to cover 243 years? So, Judges has accomplished 400 years, and now we're looking at about a 30 year time frame. The author's unknown. Traditionally, in Jewish history, the book is read right before the Feast of Weeks and Pentecost, which makes perfect sense because they're going because of the harvest. So that would be the appropriate time. The setting is in the country of Moab and they are there 10 years. We have a good timestamp in the book of Ruth where they were 10 years living there when uh, Ahimelech, Malon, and Chilion all died. And then Ruth chapter one, verse four to the end of chapter four encompasses the other time frame of the book. It's about a 30 year time block. So you can do the math. Again, a critical component I don't want you to miss, I know I've said this over and over and over in this series, but is this time about the judges. Let's look at Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. Um, These are the darkest days of Israel's history so far. Literally, the Hebrew says, in the days when the judges were judging. But our English translators don't like that, so they change it to when the judges were governing. Um, This is a, a timestamp of dread. It's not the same emotionally for us because we're not as engaged in our history. But if I said the War of 1812... Some of you historians would not understand what happened in 1812 when the Brits and uh, the continental America are at war. Some of you would be more maybe uh, at least a mostly response to say during our civil war when slavery and all that was going on between the north brother and brother killing each other in the north and south. Of course we're in the south and my one of my friends who's a diehard Southerner, calls it the war of Northern aggression you know, whatever you want to call it. But the civil war was a blight on our history. I mean, Americans killing Americans, this shouldn't happen. That doesn't even come close to the period of the judges because you had 400 years of it. And these were tribal related people all back to Yahweh Elohim who chose them to be his chosen people and to carry out the Abrahamic covenant throughout all history. Like other books of the Bible, a lot of people try to describe it from scholars to pop writers and devotionals. And it's hard to land a plane on the book of Ruth because there's so many levels of it. Um, It's it's viewed as a wonderful love story. And in a way, it is a Hallmark movie script waiting to happen because it's sort of just syrupy and sappy. Starts out with something bad, ends up everything's great. And that's what Hallmark does, right? That's why you don't have to watch it. You can tell before it starts what's going to happen. Amen. All God's people said. Uh, It's a deep reservoir, not just beyond the love story, though, because it deals with so much law. And, again, you BSFer, precept, community Bible students, you Bible study nerds, uh, to, to dig beyond the story, the love story, What is included in this text, the structure, the organization of it, the depth of it is really extraordinary compared to the brevity and this overemphasis on the love story. Think of the Levitical laws about intermarriage. Levitical laws about marrying a Moabite, about the death of a husband, about what happens when you lose your support system. There was no social security. There was no clinic to go to in antiquity. Um, what you do with a relative that you really don't know, but that's your closest kin, how you take care of them, what the system is supposed to do for them, the gleaning laws which are an extraordinary study. It's somewhat true, somewhat uh, apocryphal, but today if you go to Israel, anecdotal, if you go to Israel, you can still glean. In other words, you can go when you land in Joppa and you can go to the Jaffa orange groves right there and you can take an orange and eat it while you're in the grove. Now, you can't get a box of them and take them out. You'll go to jail. But you can glean. The law's still in effect technically. Um, But all these different laws, the care of widows, and then, of course, we have the big story, which is the culmination of the line of Messiah. God's sovereignty is working in the lives of men and women who don't always know it. God's sovereignty is working in the lives of men and women, and we are obviously not all aware of it. Uh, let me try to give you some major topics and then talk about two key themes. First of all, let's think about a famine. When we were to read the word famine in the Old Testament, we go, oh, it's, you know, it's not rained. Famine in antiquity is a matter of life and death. You're going to die. So if you don't have rain and crops don't produce or crops get a blight or they have a low production, this is a matter of life and death. If you're watching what's happening in Venezuela, they say the average body mass, people have lost like between 20 and 30 pounds because there's simply no food. It's a matter of life and death. So when we read about there's a famine in the land, that's not just sort of a yawn. This is, this is life and death and people are trying to survive. Now, there are three men named in the first chapter, Ahimelech, Malon, and Shilion. Ahimelech is married to Naomi. And it's so bad that he leaves his home of origin, Bethlehem, which is, remember, Israel's in the north, Judah is in the south, I comes before J. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. The text says he was a man of Judah. And he'd taken his family from Bethlehem to Moab. And if we were to show you a map, it's almost a straight line across the Dead Sea. Bethlehem is about eight miles south of Jerusalem. Come down a little bit further from the springs of Engedi, And you can walk right across the Lassan into the area of Moab in antiquity. Um, his, the name Ahimelech is interesting to me. Uh, don't go into the, these weeds too often, but this is an important name. You know the word Elohim, El Shaddai, the E-L is God. So we have a M-L-K. Uh, he- Hebrew is based on a tri-radical system. It doesn't have vowels. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 24 with a dot here or there, but 22 basic characters, if you will. They have no vowel systems. So you can actually read a lot of English sentences if you take the vowels out. That's how Hebrew was written. So you're looking for what's called the tri-radical. What are the three characters that are the root of the word most time three mlk no coincidence melech melech is a king and the rabbi Lemek is a fool and the rabbis would joke about if you change one letter a king can become a fool so you have melchizedek mel a king of righteousness you have elimelech god is the king Now, why would a set of parents name their son Elimelech if they didn't have some pious belief that this boy was part of their storyline? Why would they name him Elimelech if they didn't believe in God that it was the king? So it's an interesting point. The the, the names Malon and Chilion aren't quite as exciting. Uh, The the name Malon is probably a a wordplay that means one who grows weak. Why you would name a child, hey, one who grows weak? You know, I don't get that. And Chilean is even probably worse. It means failing. You're a failure. I mean, you know, we heard that too many times as it was. So I wouldn't go too far with the name explanations. But Elimelech to me is interesting that his parents chose that name. We know nothing about these guys other than that the opening story. They're dead. The father, the sons are dead. He's left a widowed mom and two widows, daughters-in-law. Um, Another major topic is the transition between judges to a monarchy. Understand, keep in mind, we've looked at the Pentateuch, this corpus of literature. Now we're into the historical books. Judges is a transition from the Pentateuch where God was to be the king. Judges is a failed errand on man's part where God chose a judge. Remember, I'm suggesting a judge was not a person in a robe, but a military leader. And they were called by God to deliver Israel from a certain battle or a certain conquest of some kind. Now we go in this little tiny book of Ruth, which is folded into the storyline of Judges. And what's going to happen is the Judges are going to go by the wayside and a monarchy is going to come along. And Christy already mentioned it. That's going to be David. Boaz and Ruth are David's great, great grandparents. Kind of a fitting thought on Mother's Day that Ruth is the great-great-grandma of King David. Uh, It's fascinating, again, for you Bible study folks, uh, when you read the last part of Ruth, where the line of Perez, Obed, Jesse, I'm not going to remember all, and finally David comes along, there's something glaringly missing. Who's the first king of Israel? Saul. Not in God's record. He wasn't his choice. Saul was the people's choice to be like other nations and have a king. And Yahweh doesn't include him in the lineage. Interesting. I'd never seen that till this week. But the lineage in Ruth just omits Saul. So that's something for you nerds like me that can study endlessly. Uh, Another major topic is the idea of sovereignty and or providence. That God works through and in spite of situations. Think about some of the backdrop. The days we're judging, we're judging. We've got a famine in the land. They're in Moab. We'll talk more about that in a minute. They left Bethlehem. What's Bethlehem mean? Bet is house, lechem is bread, the house of bread. Think of the irony. They leave the house of bread to go to Moab during a famine in the house of bread. They hear rumor and they leave Moab to go back to the house of bread. Um, Naomi, of course, heard that the Lord had visited His people and giving them food. And that's when they move back. Uh, Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me lovely or pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. All these things are happening in the storyline. God, and I I don't like to modify or use any uh, prefix, but just for hearing's sake, God is yet sovereign. God is still sovereign. You don't have to say yet or still, but it helps me with my Western mind. God, no matter what our experience may be, God is sovereign. We've got a famine. We've got a husband and two sons-in-law dead. Two sons dead, and God is sovereign. And this is part of the providential story, which is why I keep emphasizing: four hundred years of judges, thirty years of Ruth. Horrible things are happening. God's not sleeping. God's not derelict. God's not, not coming through because we have problems in our life. Uh, the last point that's a major topic, and there are many, many more, is that God uses faithful men and women uh, for his own purposes. And, and this, to me, should be an encouragement to all of us. And we'll talk more about this as we unfold it. But we've got Naomi, who's hardly a bastion of faithfulness. We've got Ruth, who is the centerpiece of the story, she's, but she's a foreigner and she's a Moabite but she believes and we've got Boaz, who's the kinsman redeemer. I would argue that he is the primary character in the book, not Ruth. Because the lineage of Messiah is gonna come as Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. Not saying Ruth is a minor subject, but we always think of the story of Ruth, it's called the book of Ruth for a good reason, but the primary actor, if you will, is God as the kinsman redeemer. Well, let me give you two themes I think the book stresses. And again, I'm not saying this is the definitive uh, way to unpack this book because as short as a book is, it's so, uh, the structure, the theology, the narrative is wonderfully deep and complex, which is one of the reasons I love the Bible. I think it was uh, Spurgeon that said, no one ever outgrows the scripture. It widens and deepens with our years. And the more you study the Bible, it's just, all these things you never saw before just blow up, unlock. You know, I never saw that before. And some of these things I'm learning. But I would give the two primary themes as the kinsman redeemer, and um, and that God is loving, kind, chesed. Let me talk about these for just a moment. Kinsman redeemer is the word goel, G-O-E-L, transliterated from Hebrew to English. Uh, the, a redeemer redeems things. He redeems. Uh, he's an avenger. He can be a person who brings revenge. Uh, typically, there was the avenger of blood, and the kinsman redeemer would come in. Redemption is from, uh, by, and to something. You've you got to redeem someone from, let's say they're in jail. You're redeeming them from jail. If you have a friend or a family member that's been in jail, you might have been called to bail him or her out. You're redeeming, you're putting a price down to get that person out of incarceration. They're redeemed by someone someone had to step up and do it. And you're redeemed to something. You're taken out of jail by someone to freedom. Okay, A little bit overworked, but it's important to understand what redemption is all about. The, the word kinsman redeemer is a derivative of the word goel. It's mentioned 20 times in this little tiny book. 20 times the idea of a redemption a redeemer. Kinsman a redeemer is a subject of this little tiny book. And Remember, this is during the time of the judges. The judges didn't pull it off. The judges were incapable of bringing redemption. The judges went to battle. So we're going to have this great storyline and this guy that's just minding his own business who becomes the one who redeems someone out of, from something to something uh, to deliver them. So a judge doesn't bring redemption, but the kinsman redeemer And of course, the ultimate kinsman redeemer is going to be the Christ. That's the point of the whole story. Secondly, uh, one of the big themes is God's chesed, his loving kindness. And if you've heard me speak more than four times, you've heard me talk about God's loving kindness. If you use a new American standard Bible, it always renders the word loving kindness. It's a cumbersome word, it's a big word, and your spell checkers will always try to fix it. Loving kindness. If you use the ESV, they opted for steadfast love. That's a very good rendering too. Other Bibles, all bets are off. NIV, will use love, kind, mercy. They'll just, they totally destroy the word in my humble opinion. Uh, it's, It's unfortunate because this word is a word we should stop and think about. What does it mean for God to be loving kind? God is loving kind to two things, his people and his promises, his chosen people and his covenant promise. God loves to be loyal, to his chosen people and his covenant promises. This is not a love that's emotional. I love you, I love you, mom. I love you, grandma, I love you, whatever. This isn't an emotional love at all. Loving kindness is the steadfast nature of God's ethical love that when he says something, it's good as gold. When he chooses something, it can't be unselected. God's chosen people God's covenant promises. God loves to be loyal to these two things. It is the most important vocabulary word in your Old Testament, God's loving kindness. And this story is about God's loving kindness and about his sovereignty through a redeemer. So the dark days of the judges judging, we're gonna get a storyline of three people. And it's it's, it's made for a movie in, in the sense that all this is going on in America and we're gonna have a love story. If you saw any number of movies that have been remade uh, of a based on a true story, which means we're mostly just making it up based on a true story. Uh, when when uh, Pearl Harbor came out, it was a love story. Wasn't about Pearl Harbor, it was a love story. And that's, you know, that's what you're getting here is a love story. But what's going on in the love story is where the meat of it is. So we got three people, Naomi, Ruth and Boaz. Let's take a look at each of them briefly. Naomi is a study in contrast. She's bereft and bitter when we meet her. And who wouldn't be? She lost her husband and her two sons. And she's living in a foreign country. Um, She's got no means of support and no means of protection. And as an older woman, she's got very grim prospects. I have, I'm not being, it's like, snap out of it and be happy, Naomi. Naomi had every right to be broken and bitter with what she had endured. Um, have any of you lived abroad for any period of time? If you have, there's always this sense of, well, back home, when I go home, whatever it is, if it's you know a food group, ice, if it's healthcare, if it's air conditioning, whatever it is that you miss terribly, I have it when I go back home. Try the reverse sometime. I have a friend who's with the Lord now, but he was born in Nigeria. He was the product of a polygamist home, came to Christ late, uh, as a boy and became a very formidable preacher and teacher and, and leader in his, in his Christian uh, denomination back in Nigeria. And uh, he always wanted to go back and live in the village. Even though he had the creature comforts of the West and spent a lot of his uh, old adult years in the West, going to school and seminary and PhD work and traveling around the world speaking, um, he, there was a romance about going back to the village And I went to his home in 1993 in the village. It was a compound made of block walls with glass shards on the top. And we had a propane tank for a little stove and they had to go down the street to get water out of the one well in the community. And we grilled meat over an open fire. And that was home to him. He missed the foods he had as a boy. So it's it's relative. It's not like you gotta have bigger, better, newer, more all the time. All that to say, when Naomi's living in Moab, it didn't matter how good the situation was, she wanted to go home. She's a bitter and broken woman, and she's lost all means of support, so you go home. The contrasts are also seen in her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah, of course, and you know the story probably too well, Orpah kisses her mother-in-law. They all cry, but Ruth, what, clings to her. So we're seeing this contrast, this bitter, bereft woman who's named Naomi. It's a, it's a literary joke. She's a pleasant woman. No, she's bitter and broken and bereft. And the one daughter's like, I'm gonna miss you, but the other one's like, I'm not letting go. So you see the contrast in her life and her daughter's in-law. By the way, meaningless trivia. Oprah Winfrey was named Orpah, but they couldn't pronounce it and spell it properly, and it became slurred, and so she's Oprah but she was named after Orpha. That's her words, not somebody making it up. I know it's gonna change your life on Mother's Day. At the end of chapter one, Naomi, when she returns, it says, all the city was stirred. Understand antiquity, understand small communities, understand you don't need faxes and telephones and internet and cell phones and text messages, Snapchat and Marco Polo, you can still communicate. And when she comes back from Moab after 10 years absence, the city is, it's a a buzz that Naomi has come back, quote, home. And look at how they respond. The women said, is this Naomi? Is this the same woman who left? So there was obviously a marked difference that the toll of life had taken on her. Chapter 1, verse 20, she writes, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. You remember the old story of the waters of Mara? When they came to the waters of Mara, they were bitter and they couldn't drink them. They throw a stick in it after God commands them and the waters become sweet. Remember that story? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. So, so the Mara is a wordplay in the Bible too. Don't call me sweet, call me bitter. Don't call me pleasant Naomi, call me Mara, call me a woman of bitterness. She's wearing it like a badge. Verse 21 of chapter 1. She says, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. By the way, as you get older, this stuff's going to hit you hard. If you don't have the right perspective, it's going to hit you hard. So don't be hard on Naomi. Why do you call me pleasant since the Lord has witnessed against me and the almighty has afflicted me? Interesting that she attributes her affliction to God, just like we all do. Because if he's God, he could have stopped this. It's one of the dumbest things we believe, but we're human beings. And human nature doesn't see providence and sovereignty. Human nature sees my situation. Let's think about Ruth a little bit. Ruth is a study in loyalty and faith. In contrast to Naomi, who's a study in contrast of bitterness And later, fullness, Ruth is a study in loyalty and faith. She's a Moabite. Now, this is a lamentable story and one I don't want to go too far into. But in Genesis chapter 19, um, there are two daughters of a man named Lot. And you remember, Lot didn't make all the best choices in the world. Uh, Lot is going to die. These two daughters aren't married. And so they get their father drunk and they get impregnated by their father. One of these great stories about By the way, other religious texts around the world don't record these kind of stories. Scripture is transparent. The product of these two two incestuous relationships with a daughter and father are named Moab and Ben-Ami. That's in Genesis chapter 19. These two children become nations, if you will, for illustration points, and they're known as the Moabites and the Ammonites perennial enemies of Israel. Lot's daughters get impregnated by their father, and they, the progeneration of them are two nations who are at constant war with Israel. Now, the sons are Moabites, the tribal group called Moabites, and it was clear throughout the Mosaic Law, you don't marry outside your tribal group. You don't marry outside of Israel. There were were laws against intermarriage. Deuteronomy 7.3 and 23.3 spoke to this. They forbade them from intermarriage, but they do it anyway. So the kinsman redeemer is the only one who can resolve this situation. It can't be resolved by a judge. That's what we're supposed to see. A judge can't fix this. A judge was a military deliverer. You need a kinsman redeemer who can buy you out of prison take you from that to some place from on behalf to help you because you can't do it yourself. Now, being married to a, a sojourner is interesting. Why Ruth married uh, into this family or, or Orpah is, is a question I don't have any answer for. But you do have to ask the question, this wasn't, they weren't supposed to do this. They did it anyway, and God's going to fold in Ruth in the storyline of Messiah. So this starts messing with your head, depending on how you look at scripture. Ruth chapter one, verse 16. uh, This of course is a good depiction of Orpha and Ruth's distinction. Ruth said, do not urge me to, uh, to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and where there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me." It's quite a declaration. Many a person, woman has had it inscribed in their wedding band as Cindy did when we got married in 1980. Um, I'll leave my land, I'll lodge with you. Lodging wasn't just, you know, I'll live where you live. I'm now making your home my home. I'm leaving the country of America to live in Nigeria. I'm leaving Nigeria forever to live in Ohio, whatever it would be. Uh, I'll dispossess my home. I'll leave behind my family. Of course, the most important phrase is your God, my God. I'm leaving behind the Moabite uh, idolatrous system of gods for the rumor I've heard about through Malon, Chilion, and Elimelech, and Naomi, who aren't necessarily poster children for good Judaism. But nevertheless, she believes in this God, your God and my God. Uh, the comment, I, I'll die with you, is interesting. I've already lost my husband. I've already lost my brother-in-law, I lost my father-in-law. It's just you and me. If we go die, we go die. And then if, if that wasn't enough, If I don't keep my word, may God do worse to me. Do you think Ruth had seen worse? She'd seen some hard things. And she's willing to jettison all that. There's no record in the Bible, and we can't go too far with this, that she ever went to Israel. She was a Moabite. They didn't travel around on the weekends like we do. Hey, let's go over to Moab today. Hey, let's go down to Jericho. You don't do that, antiquity. You stay where you are. There's no reason to travel unless it was a matter of survival. Well, it's quite a declaration, and in this, uh, she's recognizing God's sovereignty. Uh, another point about Ruth is she's willing to work, and this is missed. I was so glad Christy brought it up because too often it's missed. In chapter 2 2, she takes the initiative and she asks Naomi, Can I go glean in the fields? This is the reason they went back to Bethlehem. They heard a rumor that God had visited his people and given them food, so let's go back and see what this is about. And so. Obviously, she's going to go and, and ask and um, go glean. Let me read uh, Ruth chapter two, verse ten and eleven. Ruth chapter two, verse ten. And um, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground. I don't want to read now. Yeah. Bowing to the ground and said, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me for I'm a foreigner? She's speaking to Boaz. Boaz says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord for the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. So she's willing to work and she goes out. And again, you know the story perhaps too well, but the gleaning laws are in Leviticus 19. The gleaning laws were uh, when you plant crops, there's always what's called volunteer crops, crops that grow too close to the border in the corners around rocks uh, in shrub lines that you can't necessarily harvest as easily. So when you're harvesting and you're going through your fields, leave the fringes for the poor and the wanderer and the migrant. And that Levitical law of gleaning was still in place. So Ruth's going back to Bethlehem and that's how she's going to basically eke out a living. By the way, there was no social security. There was no insurance. There was nobody to fall back on. You had to go glean if you're going to live. What's Gideon doing in Judges chapter 6? Gideon, the mighty warrior, is gleaning wheat. and and an abandoned uh, vineyard uh, wine press. You gotta eat or you're gonna die. That's the bottom line. Ruth is a woman of great loyalty, a woman of great work, a woman who's willing to do what it takes. Boaz is a study of faithfulness as the kinsman redeemer. We're introduced to him in chapter two, verse one. He's a man of wealth. He's a relative, a distant relative of of Naomi. And, his first recorded words in chapter two, verse four are, may the Lord be with you. When we read those those sort of um, greetings and salutations, it becomes like, how you doing? It's like, God bless you. They don't mean anything. Understand in the Hebrew world, when you said, may the Lord be with you, this was, this was big theology. You're saying, may the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob be with you in your endeavors. Um, That's what God said to Gideon in chapter 6 of Judges. Valiant warrior, may the Lord be with you. That's what Gabriel says to Mary when he appears to her in Luke 128. May the Lord be with you. Some of us, I grew up Catholic, and we would say, the priest would say, may the Lord be with you. And the people would say, also with you. Some of you Catholic, also with you. But it's just a phrase. This was an opulent statement, a blessing of faith. May God be with you in what you're doing. As a pious Jew, he welcomes the gleaning provision. He says, look, this is all part of God's law, and we're going to follow it. Boaz had done some homework on the woman, which is where we get the hallmark inside of the story, right? He's already checked her out. The rumor has gone through Bethlehem like a wildfire, and he's already heard about this Naomi coming back. I know Naomi's a distant relative, but this Ruth... Goodness gracious, she left her home and came over here. She's taking care of a woman who's not her responsibility. And this has been reported back to Boaz. Um, he's also generous to help. In fact, he, this is where you see him. He's, he's taken by her because he goes, hey, just when you're gleaning, just leave some on the ground. She, she didn't have to work quite as hard. And let her come over and eat with you. And he tells her, of course, if you're thirsty, come drink from our water. pot. Don't be molested by the outsiders. You stay within my compound. We'll take care of you. Ruth, chapter 12, verse 2, Boaz speaking to Ruth, again, I read it, may the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord. Now notice this, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. The word wings, chapter 3, verse 9. And he said, who are you? This is the story, the part of the story where he's asleep and Naomi has planned this very risky deal to send him, uh, to send Ruth to go on the threshing floor and uncover his feet. And that's a whole nother story. But think of it when you're, if someone takes, you know, I don't know how you are, but if you're, if your feet are uncovered at night, you, you're cold and you wake up, probably what happened, don't overwork the story. And he's startled and he goes, who are you? And looks down there and he sees Ruth. And she says, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid for you are a close relative. So the beginning when he says, may the Lord you know, protect you and whose covering you've come to seek shelter. And then in chapter two, verse 12, under whose wings you've seen protection. And then she uncovers his feet. And then he turns around and says to her, uh, you know, let me see what I can do. So this whole imagery of the one who said, may the Lord cover you and protect you under whose wings you've come. He becomes the one who fulfills this prayer, if you will. So that's sort of a delicious part of the love story. You came under God's protection and, oh, I'm going to end up being the one that's going to protect you. A number of great lessons. Let me just focus on three quickly. Number one, we need a long view of history. From antiquity to our present lives, we are, as Americans and Westerners in general, where I, me, my, my job, my children, my life, my marriage, my money, my retirement, my vacation, my car, my, you know, I, me, my. It's just we wake up, I, me, my. Even the most altruistic person among us, is I mean, my, um, the, the ease with which we live in this country does not help the I mean, my, so I'm not trying to make any of us feel guilty or shameless, but the question becomes, it's a spiritual discipline that faith thinks beyond I mean, my, it's a spiritual discipline that thinks beyond I mean, my, um, I was looking through some Mother's Day stuff that I had on my computer the other day, and I came across a letter I'd written my mom uh, in 2017. We both, t- she turned 90, I turned 60 that year. She was 30 years old when I was born. And so I wrote this fairly long letter to her for her 90th birthday. And one of the, the I read it the other day, and I was, I was struck by I had forgotten what I'd written, obviously, uh, but I was struck by my analogies of her hands and always working, which was her story. She, She never stopped working. Some of you have moms like that. She was the last one to sit down at the dinner table and the last one to leave the kitchen every night. She raised the three of us as a single mom Monday through Friday because dad traveled for a living. He'd leave Monday and come back Friday night. And so she took care of all of us, lunches, carpools, uh, meals, everything, clothes, laundry. And those were the days when mom washed all the clothes, ironed all the clothes, washed all our linens, made our beds for us. We were spoiled rotten. We were spoiled rotten. Even, Even until a few years back. If I go visit my mother, Cindy just gave me the hardest time. I go visit my mother and I would, you know, fold my dirty clothes up and put them on the floor by my suitcase. And when I'd go and come back, they'd be washed, ironed and on hangers. I mean, I couldn't hide them from her. That's just who she was. Here I'm a grandma. I liked it when I was 16. I don't need it at this chapter of life, right? But that's mom. If you came, that's the way she would treat you. That was that generation part of it. But she would be at the church on her hands and knees, cleaning underneath the pews where no man had gone before. I mean, that woman was a sacrificial woman till the day she died. I've not known many people like that. Part of it was the generation, but part of it was, and, and that to me, we call her Grandmare, that to me, Grandmare exemplified a person that thought about others first. She had a closet in our, her house that they bought in 1965. I kid you not, the hanging area was about that big. She had one chest of drawers and her clothes fit in that much after dad died. She didn't even expand. She did. That's, that's all she wanted. A very simple person, a very hardworking person. And I think about history in this long view, how do I get out of the I, me, my view of how life's working and to how am I serving? Secondly, use great caution interpreting your experience or your circumstances. Naomi sees God's hand of affliction upon her. In fact, she's blaming God technically. The affliction he's brought on me is his fault. Elimelech didn't have to die. The famine didn't have to occur. This is a human experience. Um, It's very easy to overanalyze our experience. And here's the problem with it. When it works out, we're happy. When it doesn't, what do we do? We have to explain it away or come up with some creative way to justify why it didn't work out. I don't know how many times I've talked to people that said, well, God led me. The Lord told me. We prayed about it, and this is the solution, and we're, we're looking at experience for authority. Let me say it the most succinct way I can say it. Experience is just that. It's an experience. It has no authority. Experience has no authority. This is the only thing that's got authority is what God has said. I hope you really believe that. Because the experiential theology that has invaded American Christianity is rampant. If then is how we live life. Your experience is just an experience. If it works out, praise God. If it doesn't work out, praise God. And part of this is having a long view of history and having caution with how we look at our experiences. we have to gerrymander our theology to figure out what's happening otherwise. But finally, God has called us to be faithful, not successful. God delights in using faithful stewards, but he's not called you and me to be successful. And this, again, is a Western thing that's crept into our theology. Um, 1 Corinthians 4, 2. In this case, moreover, it is required that a steward be, uh, that steward of stewards, that one be found trustworthy. And you all know the story of a steward. You're, you're managing something that's not yours until he returns. It's one of the greatest stories in the New Testament. God's not told you to be successful. I love the parable of the stewards because he didn't ask you to go be rich. He just said, just work hard with what I gave you. The two who did well, he rewarded. The one who buried it out of fear, he punished. What are you doing with what I'm giving you? I'm not asking you to be super successful. I'm asking you to work hard to be a good steward of what is mine. Now, let me add to this the idea that faithfulness is a posture for God to bless. Faithfulness is a posture for God to bless. It doesn't mean He will, but if we live unfaithfully, why would we expect him to bless? So when I don't do premier's counseling anymore. Um, it's too complicated and smarter people do it than me and one of the things I would work with young couples who were living together I go you want to get married in a church yeah we want to pastor to marry yeah we want you we want you to marry us we love your bible teaching blah, blah, blah. and they would go on and, on and say that's great and but you're living together well yeah well how can you ask God to bless you when you're not living the way he wants you to live right now and I'm this prude old crazy guy that thinks they shouldn't live together before they get married that's fine. I don't have to do a wedding. (laughs) I didn't, I didn't become get into ministry to officiate weddings. I could go to Nevada and put on an Elvis suit. If I wanted to do that, I I didn't want to do this as part of the job. I wanted to help marriages follow Christ. And you can't ask God to bless you if you're living in sin and asking him to bless you. McFly, I mean, how hard is this? Right? But this is part of our challenge. So, what does faithfulness do? Does it mean God is going to bless? No, but it puts you in a position for God to bless. And this is where experience becomes interesting. Hear me carefully. My experience has been it's just an experience, it's no authority. My experience has been the faithful men and women are the ones who are blessed. Makes sense. He's looking for the Boaz, he's looking for the Ruth. And those are the glimmer of story, the the glimmer of highlight in this incredible story of the dark days of the judges. He's looking for where's Ruth? Where's the one who believes a rumor of a God? Where's Boaz who follows the kinsman redeemer protocol? Who still abides by the gleaning, who's still a righteous man, who does the right thing when everybody else is doing the wrong thing, everyone else doing what is right in their own eyes. Not Boaz. He's looking for the faithful, not the successful.